Tonight, a team full report that will have you wondering what would you have done. It involves a woman shot and left paralyzed. Her gunman, a local teen, imprisoned but now free. Tonight, Chris Schauble with a story of violence, recovery, and betrayal. Roller skate on the beach. Go out dancing with my friends. Play a game with my niece. These are the things Lisa LaPierre dreams of. Go meet my mother for dinner and her not have to feed me. Things she has not been able to do since July 11, 1994. He walked up to my window, he stuck that gun in my window, and he pulled the trigger. One bullet ripped through her neck. The shooter, a gang member. He was 14 years old. His goal was to kill me. Lisa was paralyzed from the neck down, and shooter Frank Lewis was committed to the California Youth Authority. In this tape, provided to Lisa by Victim Services, It would be scary if Lisa had my hand. Frank Lewis talks about the prospect of Lisa attending his parole hearing. Boy, are gonna look at what I did, and they're gonna be like, oh man, this is what he done done. And they're gonna really see the impact of my crime. Welcome back to the Broken Home Podcast. And tonight we have one hell of a guest. This guest has lived an exceptional life, has learned some exceptional lessons throughout his life. There's just so many different levels and circumstances that have all intertwined to make this man's entire existence come together. And we have him here to talk with us all tonight, Mr. Frank Lewis. How you doing tonight, Frank? Oh, I'm blessed, and on this Sunday, I'm highly favored, fellas. Uh, you know, I'm suffering from the charges losing, but besides <laughs> that, I'm doing fine. How about yourself? Absolutely fantastic, my man. Absolutely fantastic. Thanks for asking. So how we usually like to start this off is we like to take it back, way back, pretty much around the time when your story actually started, when you were growing up. Where are you from? Where, where are you coming from with us here? I'm born and raised Inglewood, California, home of the Chargers and the Rams. 12-11-1979. I'm a 70s baby. I, I, I made the cut. Barely made the cut. <laughs> 1979, Inglewood, California, in the height of Crip and Blood pandemic, as well as the rise of the crack, the cocaine becoming crack. So it wasn't yet the 80s crack wave, but it was preparing to hit the streets because the war and, and overseas was happening. So the need for the contracts to be funded was starting to arrive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you were growing up, did you have brothers, sisters living at the house with you? What was the family like? Broken home. This is, I was made to be on this podcast because <laughs> Beginning, it was broken, but it wasn't negatively broken at first. It was, I was blind to out of wedlock kids that live in another home and have another mother, but the same father. So I had several siblings outside the home that I didn't know were siblings. My father tried to keep this from me being born in 43 and my mom in 55, there was an age difference. So there were some kids she didn't even know about. So I have in the home a little sister that was born when the Celtics finally, when my Lakers finally beat the Celtics in 83, my little sister was born in the home. So same mother, same father, my little sister. That's how we started in the 80s, in 83. Nice, nice. Did you have 
role models growing up or was Pops the role model? It's a good question because I've always been a very broad thinker. Even at a young age, I've my journey to make it in this world, which I'll backtrack to before me, because to even get to 79, we got to talk about my father and my mother's merging. I'm um, Puerto Rican and Black. So I had either way to go because most of my mother's family members were Latino gang members from Hispanic Southsider gangs, whereas my father's family were all Crips and Bloods. So in the early days before elementary school, any of these things, gangs was coming home. My mom told me that my dad was worried about me being shot. That's how violent it was in the early set, because you got to think about it. In the beginning, the Crips started in 69. I was born in 79. The Bloods started 72 through 74. So this was the heat of the war I was being brought into. In your childhood, what would you say is your happiest moment? Wow, there's too many, to be honest. So we're going to keep it in the 80s. In the 80s, I remember going to the uh, Castic Lake with my father. We would That would be, this was before the crack pandemic. So 83, 84. That's why I, I said it was a, a, a hard to answer question because I'm still contemplating role models because there were so many different role models. Growing up, my father was a Laker fan, so I idolized Magic and Kareem. But I lived next door to the East Coast Crips at this time so i was allure i was like attracted to the illusion of the money and the the women and the attention that was always dealt with over there so growing up in the 80s it was hard to focus on like let's say let's take it out from inglewood california the closest city to us that probably grew up without the same dynamics and dysfunction as us Lawndale. Beverly Hills, these are like a bus ride away from us where these kids were going to school and their worries were what kind of shoes, what was the style, you know, those type of, how am I going to, what am I going to eat for lunch? Where we asked, we were worried about what gang environment we had to walk through. We were worried about getting shot going to school. They taught us instead of the earthquake drill, after the earthquake drill, now this is the shooting drill, get away from the windows. Damn, that's quite the environment to have to be schooled through on two different levels, education-wise and then street school, learning how to move out there, learning what to wear in this area, what not to wear in that area. And that's a lot for a kid to take in who just wants to wear his favorite team's jersey or something when that can mean life or death for the fucking kid, you know? Like, it's a lot. It's a lot. And a lot of responsibility on the parent as well. When you were going to school, did you ever run into any static like that? Did you ever have any instances like that? Today, gangs are grown through social media, boys in the hood and colors. Then it was elementary school, uh, the after school programs. That's where gangs were groomed. So eight years old, nine years old. I was born in Inglewood. 
My grandmother had a home in Inglewood, but my father and mother lived on the east side of South Central in the East Coast Crips territory. And they were one of the first Crips. So they were hated. And the Anthus Parks were walking like our school. I went to 118th Street Elementary School. For us to go to basketball practice, we would have to walk to Athens Park. Walk. Eight-year-olds. So that shows you how close Athens Park Bloods was to the 11-8 East Coast is where our <clears throat> elementary school was. They're right up the block. So going, like, let's, let's do the compare and contrast. Beverly Hills is worried about signing field trip slips to go to the observatory where they're telling us we're signing liability slips. Well, if your child is murdered in a gang-related shooting while walking to the facilities to practice basketball, we're not liable. So the mentality is way different. I would fucking say <laughs> it's a lot. That's a lot to have to take in. But would you consider yourself desensitized to that learning that that was all you knew growing up? That was basically how you was raised. I would like to say now that I have two college degrees, I've read thousands of books and I'm well studied. I would like to say now that was the coping mechanism and the only thing our parents knew how to teach us to deal with the violence was to desensitize us. That's where the no snitching, don't be telling, uh, go out and fight them, go back and fight, don't come back crying. That was the desensitization process being installed in us by parents that knew no better because they were suffering from a crack uh, epidemic that had everybody pretty much trying to get high. So the if it wasn't that, they were working to keep a roof over their family's head. There were so many different dynamics and causes for broken homes. That's why it was so violent. Growing up, through the 80s, being a, a kid and seeing how the crack uh, epidemic is is affecting communities, were you able to navigate and stay away from, from those kinds of drugs? Or did you kind of fall into to using? I like to set examples or demonstrate how it was by going to movies. Have you guys seen Colors? Oh, or, yeah. Or South Central, The Little Bobby? Uh, it, let's go to Boys in the Hood. The I ain't from Africa. I'm from Crenshaw. Those little dudes. I'm not the only one. There was thousands of them, but that was everyday life. Seeing your parents smoking drugs, finding uh, drug paraphernalia, walking to school. So not only like, and this is why I feel so sympathetic to this today's generation, because then we had to just deal with drug abuse and gang violence and police brutality. Today, you've got bullying, school shootings, uh, fentanyl, uh, peer pressure. There are so many different dynamics that make it harder for the youth. It's like they have to be 10 times more desensitized and hard-skinned or they'll fall victim to drug abuse, uh, uh, prostitution, um, suicide. So in our time, our parents felt that because I was raised in the by the baby boomer generation. My, my mom was a baby boomer and 
her husband, like my father's older, so he goes back to the Jim Crow era. So it was a very Black Pantherish, Puerto Rican slash growing up in a Latin community because my mother wasn't raised in Puerto Rico per se. She was raised in the streets in 55. So 65 when I like to say when the Ross riots happened and the first example of men that really did try to set leadership, rules and morals were taken out. The police got them, put them in jail. And what a lot of people don't know, like for example, 4,000 people were arrested in the 65 uprising. 1992 riots, it was a little higher, 12,000 people were arrested. 1984, Operation Olympic Games, arrested 26,242 individuals with a 92% African-American percentage of that in 1984 before the Olympics. So you could put the Watts riots and the LA riots arrest together and that isn't a pinch of a percentage of what they did to clean up Los Angeles for the Olympics. And I say that for this younger generation, because everything I like to teach, uh, speak, I like to have uh, some kind of knowledge or insight, a solution instead of just glorification. And I just went to this Super not went to the Super Bowl, but I'm in Vegas now. So I traveled to California to be part of the festivities of the Super Bowl. And there's a homeless encampment that was there. My mom said 20 years before she was born. So that takes us into the 30s. This homeless encampment in Inglewood, California. For that Super Bowl, it's gone. They got rid of a homeless encampment that has been there for so many years. And I say that to say 2028, we have a Olympic game coming to California new Super Bowl. So just young individuals that are listening to this right now, prepare, think about that. They arrested 28,000 people in the Olympics in 84 with the rappers that are now being highlighted. They're gonna have probable cause to significantly increase laws. They're gonna get rid of that no bail. So all the dudes that's going and smashing and grabbing that 2028, they're going to try to eliminate all of those crimes and those perpetrators. Damn. They're going to have to build more jails if they're going to fucking uh, try to clean out the areas. Then that's insane. So I, I want to take it back now that we've learned a little bit about where you're coming from. You got yourself into some trouble as a youth. What was your first interaction? with the gang lifestyle? Fifth grade, 118th Street Elementary School. There was no kidding. I'm just looking at it now in my head. I could see the, the bleachers where we sat at being summoned by a sixth grader who couldn't have been no more than 13 years old at the time. Baby Eight Ball was his name. And I come to meet him again many years down the line. This was fifth grade. It was either be cool or accept it and be a crip. 
are, there was no other option because like I said, we were walking distance from the Bloods who had their own elementary school on the other side of the park. So we didn't interact with those guys. So it was like, it was no peer pressure to be blood or crypt, blood or crypt. I live on a street where every day, honestly, a hundred guys are out here. Easy, easy. I would like to say thousands. So I remember six, seven years old where my pops is navigating through bodies of all these crypts, mass movements, because 118th Street consisted of like, it was like a thoroughbred, like 118th East Coast, 118th Carver Park, 118th Mona, that street, the Crips were trying to establish no bloods being allowed on 118th Street. So drive-by shootings, it was every day at elementary school, it was like going to a, a how when the police go and they had that briefing, well, today there were two shootings and this guy's on the run. Eight ball would come with the briefing because his father was big eight ball. His brother was little eight ball and he lived next door to me. At seven years old, I became aware of gangs. I knew already those guys, the guys out there aren't the Boy Scouts. <laughs> let me know. So my father was not a gang member, but he had two brothers one from Bounty Hunter Bloods and one from the Black Peastone Bloods, two of the first original blood foundations. So he despised his little brother's gangbang. Now, in his younger days, he was a pimp. And this goes into back. We're going back now. I'm 79. Now we're back into... I'm going to say 60, my mama, 65, she was 10, when I was 12 years old, my mama ran away from home. So when the Ross riots came, because my, my grandfather migrated here from Puerto Rico to build a, a mechanic shop, and it was destroyed in the Watts riots, which led to him abusing heroin and alcohol and beating his kids, which led them becoming Florence members. And my mom running the streets in 65, 66, this 67. So before the Crips. So now here's a name I'm going to bring up. He's been in a few, if you're familiar with the Kev Mac videos, mm -hmm. there's an older gentleman named Bird. Yep. Bird took my mother under his wing at 12 years old in 67. Like I say, this is before the Crips. So this is where I get my, because everybody has their own opinion or belief in how the process and timeline goes. Mm -hmm. I got this from my mom being right there with Bird, and you'll hear further down how it comes back around. But then I believe the Crips today would be business suits, briefcases, and corporation billionaires if Bird wouldn't have chose to go with the Florences. He wanted to bring the black and brown unity together. So instead of going with the Crips, when big Craig Munson, like this was the big bodybuilder dude who rejected Raymond Washington, the leader of the Crips. So from what my mother is telling me, Raymond went to Bird 
who's a lot smaller in statue, but greater in getting somebody hurt. So it would have been more fair. But instead of Bird slapping him and rejecting him, he tried to show him like, yo, if we get with these Hispanic dudes who got this large amount of work we can work with, you know, we can make some money in this illegal trade. So instead of doing that, they felt more from what my mother told me. It was really uh, like a lot of the Crips try to say, no, nah, it wasn't no Black Panthers and we weren't trying to do none of that. We were just taking over the streets. From what my mom who stood there with Bird and from me meeting Bird later, hearing, know that Bunchy Carter, who was assassinated at UCLA, Black Panther founder of the LA chapter. So Huey Newton and Bobby Seale came and anointed Bunchy Carter, who would have been where like the first East Side Crips began, the Kitchen Crips, the worst area in South Central right now today, probably always has ever been. That would have been, that's where the head of the Black Panther Party in 1968, he was anointed. 68, the Crips became 69. From my understanding, the altercation with uh, Munson and Raymond, my mom said that happened. She said she heard about that when Raymond had came to talk to Bird while she was with him. And this was 67. So it ain't like he got slapped and tomorrow is a thousand Crips. So from my mom's telling me from 67 to 69, he rounded up the troops. So during that time period, my mother now keep in mind having Hispanic roots, but being with Bird, who at the same time being a Black with Hispanic, they were trying to do, keep the hippie, that hippie end of Vietnam peace era coming on because there was no racial tension. The Hispanics were just trying to earn their respect. And there were certain individuals that were African-American that weren't, it wasn't like all Blacks hated Hispanics. There was a lot of unity in this day. So I believe that the reason why, like I say, if Raymond, a uh, uh, bird would have chose to say, hey, I ain't doing that, I'm going here. So that's mother's history. So now pops, mom's is born in 55. My dad was born in 43 in Sweetport, Louisiana. 43, this is, that was like you was worried about being lynched from how he explained this to me. So he never, how do I say this? Tried to sugarcoat or deceive me. Everything was straight, bold, upfront. My mother would be like, don't talk to him like that. But he let me know about unity. Um, he was doing the same thing. He's married to a Puerto Rican woman. You know what I'm saying? So I was, I was raised without that racial, racist type of thing. Then I had an auntie who was Puerto Rican, but she had married a white sheriff and she had become a, a highway patrol. So I looked at her as Caucasian. So there was no 87, 88, 89 going to school. I would look for the white guy or, or the uh, Italian dude, the other. Hey, let me get with you because I'm Puerto Rican and black and they talking about my curly hair and they got the jokes about my light skin. So the gangs, I knew then 
kind of like what my mom told me, what Birdis told me, what Kev Mac videos and all the other uh, historians on gangs have said, they knew they were going to create their own lane or avenue. I knew then I didn't want to kill my people. I didn't even want to hurt other people. But going back to that classroom and that man shooting everybody a letter, like they said in prison, they shoot you a letter, don't read the letter. <laughs> Meet up at the Blinchers at lunchtime. And what we were supposed to do is write all our names in, uh, uh, remember the Kichi Peachy, that little, there was a little school photo. It was like a, a orange color peachy. It was, everybody used to have these Oh school. shit, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were supposed to sign that. And that was going to be like our initiation into the Crips. So now keeping in mind, my father, since I can remember learning that gang stuff ain't cool, the drug use, disrespecting women, I'm hearing a lot of these values that I'm hearing from my dad, which what he wouldn't tell me, though, is like, remember I told you he wouldn't sugarcoat things. Yeah. But he would leave certain things out. Like he didn't tell me he was in prison. He didn't tell me he was shot in the head. He felt that I probably, this is an assumption because I didn't make it to hear this from him, but I think that he was, he didn't want me to glorify and think I had to be shot in the head. He liked to show me the work ethic, but why it took me so long to answer, who did I look up to? I was ashamed of myself to not looking up to my father because he goes and get up, brush his teeth at five in the morning and drives way to Bellflower to clock in and work slaving for these people at Rouse Market. I was, I knew that wasn't right. I didn't know why. Keep in mind, I'm nine, eight years old. But then unknowingly, I, I would see the people from next door, the Crips coming over. And in the 80s, it was recruiting. You know how today, like, we try to teach our kids, get a baseball glove, here's a bat, a book, yeah. here's a gun, here's some drugs. Those are the enemies. This was, I, I'm not saying I was the only eight-year-old night. It was about 20 of us on the bleachers when we got that letter to go to the bleachers. So the whole time in my mind, I'm like, damn, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a crip. I didn't even know what a blood was. I just knew the derogatory word because that's all they said on that time. And it was at this part. So when they said that I word, I thought all bloods were at this parks. Then crack came. We going 86, 87. And I'm not knowing my mom is using. I didn't know what the Crips was coming over there for, but the attention and the recognition, because a lot of those kids on that bleacher were getting drove into school. Some of those kids lived in Gardena and other, and they, I'll, I'll sign that all day. I'm going to go home and play my Nintendo. I'm next door to these dudes. So fear, that's the first time I became fearful. Like, I didn't want to be a crip. I didn't want to tell my pops I wanted to be a crip because when he saw me crying about Jasmine God, he went in on me. Don't never let a woman do this. <laughs> Some years down the line, I figured out he blamed my mom for him smoking drugs. I didn't know he was smoking cracks right then and there. And why he went so hard. Like, you supposed to teach me the birds and the bees. Why are you acting like this? 
he's emotionally torn, ashamed, and, and trying not to let me, like, not being shot in the head and going to jail. I can't let this dude know I'm smoking crack. I was torn. Did, did the drugs tear your family apart? I'm going to say there were three contributing factors. You have one, my father's ego and pride and anger. That led to drugs because the ego and all of that came from he working hard, getting up there. Remember how I told you I looked at him? Like I'd rather look up to these dudes out here selling drugs than him, not knowing he had the same thing because he used to be a baller back in the day. He used to be in the game, but had his kids like all those other brothers and sisters was his mess up. Me and my little sister was his opportunity to repeat and show that he could do something right that he failed in doing. But the temptation of living next door to these things and then it caused him to start abusing the drugs, then the lies and the... So I would say it wasn't solely the drugs. It was first, like how we not prepared now, he wasn't prepared to be a father by his because he was raised, hate the man, It's we gotta get out of the South. So his mentality was already hateful and, and secretive and prideful. So that caused domestic violence and that led to him always beating up my mom police this was my introduction to because before remember i told you i didn't want to be no crip or none of that yeah. we had that meeting the next day because then you would leave your uh what's that called your folder the peachy folder and all that in your desk that lady went through there and read that dang roll call we walked in all our names she had wrote names on the chalkboard. So I'm like, what my name doing on there? So I'm usually get on the other side, you know, with the stars for complete my homework, good attendance and not cussing. Now I'm over there. And it's like I said, I was so perturbed, scared. Like, are they going to kill me? They got dogs over there. I'm a little kid. I don't know what the initiation probably do I have to kill or there were so many things going through my mind that it didn't even cross my mind that I was busted. Then the policeman came in. Second time crying. That damn quick. <laughs> <laughs> A couple of weeks after that, that was the, you know, they look for the vulnerability, the, the broken, the, the weakest link will break the chain. And I was the only one crying. Everybody else, crip here, this go cuss. But everybody else knew that their parents were smoking already. It had already surpassed that level. I didn't know why I cried. I, I cried because I didn't know my mama and daddy smoked crack. These dudes don't care. They brothers is out there got shot. They uncle did. They don't know where they daddy at. He in prison somewhere. Ain't nobody. I don't care. Crip, they gone. That was like, that was them getting an A. Whereas I was going to be disciplined. Uh, I was going to let the family down, be a disappointment in my eyes. But when my pop said nothing, that was the first, it's time for me to be Inspector Gadget. That was my cartoon at the time. Because my insight, my reform, my change, all comes from remembering that day when I knew my daddy was lying, when he told me, that's your mama. He tried to put everything on my mama. 
Because they trying so hard to deceive us because they're ashamed to say they smoking drugs. We think they gangbang. These Crips coming over there selling that dope. So I'm like, oh, daddy's a Crip. So now my mind is all twisted. And that's 1989, 10 years old. 10 years old. And, and you were, did you actually become a member of the Crips then? You think they wanted me after I cried that day? <laughs> <laughs> you got the hard bounce after that? <laughs> My name was, they didn't do the crossing. I got erased off the peachy folder. It wasn't crossing out there and they erased my ass. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to tell y'all something crazy. I'm like my father. I don't like to start something and not finish. So remember, everybody think Raymond Washington got slapped in 69 in March, and by September there were a million crips. 67 to 69 is what I'm getting from my mama and Bird was the time to formate an army. So what happened is probably about policemen came, they the first time a gang awareness class, we had to do gang class. And um, the first day of gang class, this is what got me in this situation. So my sister, what they did is so my mom wouldn't have to come walk, get her and come back. They had like an after school Girl Scout type program. So for two hours, because of me having my name written on this damn punk ass peachy thing, we leave the school. This is uh, 1988, actually. This is uh, right before summertime, before summer school started. We was getting ready. This was actually the last day of school because I was mad because I was going to have to come for three more weekends in the summer to this damn gang class. So as we coming out, we go to the ice cream truck, and this guy named Tiptoe from East Coast Crip, he's a buyer. He's a big moneymaker. He's buying everybody whatever you want, man. Order it up. Your mama, the daddy, the dog, whoever want, whatever. And I'll never forget it. Uh, white Cadillac, kind of like Tupac. And now these streets on the east side, anybody that's from South Central and been on 118th and San Pedro where that school is, it's like ain't no two cars coming down that street. So now keep in mind, the ice cream truck got everything is stuck. The dude politely gets out the car and closes the door. I'm watching it because he had a jerry curl. This was my first time seeing a jerry curl. The Crips had a rule. They cut their head bald. The jerry, what is that? And the color red. I only see blue. So if I would have really knew that them dudes that they call that Ula word wore red, I could have yelled out, tiptoe. This dude blew his brains out, right? Like, we right there opening the ice cream, so six, seven feet. You can see the smoke, the brain matter. Boom, boom. First time seeing somebody murdered. That was nine years old. It didn't scare me like I thought it would. Like, some of those dudes hid ran but we're children that's what you're supposed to do but remember we're supposed to be so desensitized 
And so don't come running in here without whooping somebody ass. Go back and do that. So we're so used to being so hard that I use that. This is where I learned to start manipulating. Like in these broken homes, there are certain contributing factors, whether it be drug abuse, domestic violence, you get these learned behavior patterns. Tiptoe get killed. And my father says, this was the first time I missed school. And this threw me off. Third time crying. I wanted to go to school. At this time, I say, how he crying? He was running. Remember, though, I live next door. So now me being ostracized kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I was nervous riding my bike by him. I didn't want them to stop buying me ice cream. If them dudes from the red side come over here, I didn't want them to leave me hanging. So I used manipulation. I learned from my mama and daddy. I used that skill to win my way back in the favor of these dudes. Like, hey, I'll go steal us some candy bars. I know how to do this. I know how to do that. So shortly after the first murder, I used what these, some of these dudes never came back to school. Was laughing at me, talking about, I use a punk and all this and that. You only want to come back. I learned how to be respectful. I didn't know it was called respect. I thought it, I thought it was uh what we used to call it, jocked. Oh, these people was jocking me. Mm. I like, I just gotta do what my daddy told me not to do. He a liar anyways, and that's why I mentioned to fathers to keep it all the way honest. Show that example, cause you messing with your kid's head, cause they're so smart, and we think since they little brain that's. God made that brain to learn extra. Our brains is we got weed, alcohol. Some people do them drugs and pills and all that. Our brain cells ain't nowhere near as theirs. And we think about how much we can acquire, remember, recite, say, speak. And theirs are more sharper than ours. So their mind is made to deal with emotion, spirit, feeling like, oh, this man ain't going to feed me. You know, I got to cry. They're more in tune than we are. And I was way, like I say, them putting all these manipulative tactics, the violence, the desensitization, the Laker love. I want to be a Laker and know I'm too short. So the uh, low self-esteem, insecurity, the bullying at the school, knowing that if I ever want to be bullied, I got to do something bad. And it was still in is where it started. That takes us to tiptoe gets killed. I'm back in the good graces. And I got caught with a blue bandana. Remember, you got to leave everything at school. Now, the older Crips had to have bald heads. Of course, these seven, eight, we couldn't, everybody just could say, oh, we got to all go cut our heads. So A-Ball was like, my pop said, well, since all y'all can't cut y'all hair, y'all got to have a blue rag on y'all at all times. So I wasn't there for take my blue rag home. I'm like, I'm just going to put it right here. You know, leave it in the desk. Mm-hmm. And damn. I went into school. 
fourth damn time crying. For the first time ever, there was only one name on the bad side. All the Crips still in the class, but only my name is on the thing. I didn't know then, but God has always sent like judges, parole officers, probation officers, correctional officers, certain Crips to teach me a lesson, to challenge me just that much more. And I thought that she was picking on me when in fact she saw something special in me. But of course with the drugs um, getting more intense and my father lacking on his responsibilities, he lost his job. He got up like how they do in the movies, you be seeing the man get up like he really going to work. He put on his apron and the whole nine yards. <laughs> and my mama and me coming from school one day, she uh seen him with a woman in the park around the corner from the house when he should have been way in Bell Gardens at work. Fight, pops beat moms up in front of me and my sister on uh, Avalon 51st at South Park in front of everybody. Police actually was rolling by. They took my daddy to jail and they took us to a shelter. And this is my first time being in downtown Los Angeles. So happened to see Skid Row. Now I come from the Crips, the Bloods, the Crack, the Tiptoe getting shot to tents and cardboard boxes. Like we to get into the shelter the domestic violence shelter, which is behind the mission for the homeless people shelter to eat, I see a whole different element of the broke down dysfunctional environment. My mom told me she, and I use this with my kids now, she said, if I let these type of issues like the gangs, if I start joining the gang, she said, all them was old Crips. <laughs> she was like, <laughs> if you become a Crip, that's what's gonna happen to you. So I was like, oh, I ain't finna be no Crip. To make matters worse, in order to go, like the purpose of this shelter, we would have had to do six months here, but there were three clauses or requirements. One, she would have had to file a restraint order on my father. Two, she'd have had to testify on my father. And three, she would have had to sign a paper saying that she would relinquish the rights to any uh, benefit that we received if she got back with my father. And uh, oh, wow. she just knew it wasn't going to happen. A lot of people really get the democratic way deceived. Like, here goes some food stamps, here go this, here go that. Make it look good, but put such a hell of a clause on it that's in a very small print that gets you addicted, dependent, and takes the father out the picture. I don't come over here, Cleotis. I'm doing my food stamps. I ain't gonna get no block of butter and the peanut butter going. The kids are gonna be it's just for the kids, baby. But then have another man over there, and that's when you see the cheating because you ain't understanding. These are contributors to the broken home. And Absolutely. My moms didn't want to go back to my dad, though. She ain't want to testify, get the restraining order, and go through all of that. So she went to the next best thing. Let's go to my my side of my family, Inglewood, California, and let's sell some drugs. Right now, there are million-dollar homes where we used to kill people. <laughs> you know, oh, like, wow. 
Yeah, yeah. There's a billion-dollar stadium where we used to rob people every weekend. Every weekend, we was waiting for somebody to come out that little bitty casino to hold them up or that racetrack with a winning ticket. In 1989, it was predominantly bloods. There were a few up-and-coming crib games. But you go across one major street, Florence one way, Gay that way, and West Boulevard that way, you in the rolling 60s. So there weren't many Crips in Inglewood per se, but you crossed that border and the most notorious next to the 60s, I mean, to the Hoovers and the East Coast is the rolling 60s was right there. And remember, I think all bloods are at this park. So when we roll up to grandma's house, Oh, it's the Athens Parks. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Damn. They going to kill me like tiptoe, but I'm way in Inglewood, though. But to make it worse, my auntie is affiliated with certain Inglewood Crips. And in these days, Crips were Crips. So I'm seeing dudes here that were on my porch way on the east side. like So that really solidified in my mind. Oh, yeah, it's Athens Parks are all red. East Coast is all blue. This is at 10 years old, what I was thinking until we checked into an Inglewood school. <laughs> That's where I would say I went from elementary to junior high, even though I was still in elementary school mm -hmm. in the gang side, I was graduating because they were, the bloods were weren't no one solid leader. Like, you know, you always hear the leader of the Crips, Tukey Williams and Raymond White. You never hear the leader of the Bloods this or the leader of the Bloods that. Our protocol, it was a total different atmosphere. It was like, um, how could we hear? I would say the best time that I've seen this, that I say that most citizens that never really was out there like that could relate to, Feeling tension, September 11th. You know, that eerie feeling just that you just, you don't know what, if you could feel the grief, the hate, the pain, the confusion. That's how it was living in South Central. It was always some kind of tension. But in Inglewood, it's partying. Everybody over there, it's, there were no Latino gangs on that that part of the east side, so I didn't even know what the Southsiders was. So coming to Inglewood with Inglewood Thresse being right there, there's more. Oh, they they look like me, so I wasn't getting talked about so much more because they were more mixed kids. They were more privileged children, so there wasn't as much hate and jealousy. So it didn't take me long. Once I learned the book and the blueprint, I was like, oh, I would be with this. Even though I always was, um, I would pray because we always was spiritually inclined. So God, if you just bring my dad back, you feel me? Bring the family back together. I won't join these thugs. So it continued to get worse. And now I noticed both moms and pops, there was, it's neglect now. School, going to school wasn't a priority anymore. And on your part or or your parents' part, bringing you to school my or mom, you going? My, my pops, I didn't even know where dad was. I thought he, in my mind, I thought he still was in jail. 
Oh. Last time I see, he went to jail. We went to that damn shelter. I don't know why we left the shelter, but we was like in boys in the hood rolling up in the hood with the the skateboard. Like, I'm back. It opened my mind to the bloods. Before, it was the, the disrespectful terminology or Athens Parks or disrespect. That's all I knew as far as the red guys and the color. I knew that that was the team we didn't want to join. But remember now, I'm thinking my father was in jail. He was actually, um, what do they call that? Stalking, creeping, lurking. And the drugs were starting to make him jealous. Um, seeing moms with another man. Another fight with him and this man. Almost killed this man. So the police looking for him now. It, it, it was getting bad. This is the end of 89 going into... New Year's 1990, because um, what would that be? Getting ready to get into the playoffs, the end of the season, because I remember my mom, she had my dad's car. He had two cars, and he demanded his car back, so I guess he came over there and told my grandmama he going to kill everybody he don't <laughs> get his car. So I begged my mom to go with me, to go with her, to pick up the car. And um, long story short, we made the trip to go drive. We was going to catch the bus back and everything and got there and caught pops with another woman, a, a manager from the old grocery market he used to work at, beat up moms again, went to jail. So I'm like, oh, he's gone for sure. And my auntie hated my father. So she told me, yeah, he's going to get life in prison. Like the smut game went intense until two days later, my dad was knocking on the door with a shotgun. It was right after school. I think he was trying to get there thinking we were at school. He just so high, he was thrown off, and he got stopped by the police. So, like, after the investigation, he was held back for about 40 minutes. The police had stopped in a drunk state with a shot. Like, in my mind, I'm like, the devil was plotting on me from the beginning to send me down this journey. And it was either I'm going to teach more people to be bad or be this example I am today because um, that was it. <laughs> hey, no, man. Take as many as you need, my man. The Inglewood Police Station. Inglewood is small. So the police station is right down the street from where my grandmother lived. So... My grandmother's a small Latino woman that barely knows English. My auntie, she was scared. So when the sirens, we heard the sirens come, they laxed up because I'm trying to get out the whole time. Like maybe if I give him a hug or something, he stopped tripping. They said, get away, go in the room, go in the room. But when they heard the sirens, they slipped and I got by them. And wishing I never did, I ended up, Actually, I witnessed my father's chest blown out with a shotgun. The police did that to him? Yeah. Uh, Sergeant Coons. So this is also the first time me having a weapon put on me. Because what happened is my father pulled up to the back of the apartment. Jumped out because our apartment was at the way in, a big apartment complex. So he went through the alley and pulled up from the back. 
the responding officers came way from the front because they got the front address. They not knowing a little cut in the back. So this is how we know he intentionally went because the shotgun didn't even work. I knew that we all knew that the shotgun didn't work. Even my auntie, when she was calling the police, she even stated the gun doesn't work, but he still could hit one of us upside the motherfucking head. That was her exact word. I remember this like yesterday. And from being a criminal now and being in domestic situations, I know when things like that go on, dispatch puts the, they hearing this because it's a high tense situation. So they want the law enforcement, the first responder to know exactly what you're going. This is the 911 caller. So they heard this. And I say my father was probably about 15 to 20 feet from the officer. And I was about 30 feet behind my father. Before that gun went up, now I'm not gonna lie. It you know, throwing is this, up is this. Pops was doing that. He wasn't trying to throw it. But it still to this day, 30-some years later, I still was like, damn, was he that drunk? Like, I don't know. But a flinch. And it, it was like that police was like Robocop. That's how I remembered it. It looked like Robocop. He turned into John Murphy. Boom, 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 boom. And I go try to run, and I'll never forget the Laker hat, how it, I, I can remember how it flew and fell. And I'm like, no, this ain't real. Like, I'm like, is it a dream? Like, it's like the only time I can recall that feeling is being in jail, and you try to go to your pocket to get your cell phone. Like, I got to call the homies to get some bail. He's like, where's my phone? Like, oh, I'm in jail. You know, that was that feeling like, this ain't real. So as I run to him, he pulls up the shotgun. Get out! Get back! Get back! Like, he's hysterical. I'm like, what the hell? This dude makes a 10-year-old boy get down on the ground beside his dying father. He saw your hands. He knew you didn't have nothing. And I'm, I'm a very small individual. I was like, I may have been, I was 10, but I probably looked at eight. Yeah. A child. My my. We had a uniform shirt. I was in uniform. It was right after school. My backpack. I remember this shit. And this was just broad daylight? Right after school, 315. And how many officers uh, were on site? It was uh, just him. That was it, eh? It was oh, just wow. He jumped out the car by himself, Mr. Coombs. But after that, they start flying. They're like, they was coming after that. Like, shots fired, shots fired. He got the gun. Shots fired. Yellow tape, everybody coming out. It was just like a dream. But yeah, yeah, my mom's not here. So I'm having to come for my little sister. And she not crying. It's spooking me out. She just like, I don't know what shock is. I don't, I'm mad at her for like, bitch, why I'm crying and you ain't. Fuck the police. And then yeah. the homies across the street saying the same thing. Instantly, I'm a blood. I'm a child. Y'all saying fuck them? Fuck them. Worst decision ever. You became a blood right there then? No. You... Nope. Remember, I come from the east side. Yeah. I just happen to be in an all-blood community. I like these bloods. But the east coast has came to my daddy's funeral. That, like, that meant so much to me. Like, I'm willing to die for y'all. 
I'm going to wear blue. I'm going to say I'm from East Coast. All that. Now, keep in mind, let's not say I'm Tukey Williams. In Inglewood, there was at least 15 or 16 East Coast. East Coast was like, then it was thousands of them. You know what I'm saying? They were everywhere. And they were more older and mature. So it was like we were more focused on rolling 60s. That was like, they was like Nipsey. You know, he'd go wherever they want. Most East Coasters go wherever they want. So that influence, them coming to the funeral, and me wanting to be different. My daddy got killed in March. So I started running with this. This was my first initiation. It was a, a posse. It was called One Man Gang Posse. After my father got killed, they let me get like a, a, a anguish leave. I was like on a leave or something. I wasn't going to school. So at that time, I started running with those One Man Gang Posse. That's how I got these dudes with high school dropouts. But all of them were Eastside Crips, who I had no idea didn't get along with East Coast Crips. They were Broadway's, Kitchen Crip, uh, uh, Main Street, all East Coast enemies. I thought only the red guys didn't get along with the East Coast dudes. And they thought that was funny, being a little dude. So instead of, um, oh, cuz, like how those dudes on 118th Street was, they tried to protect me and mold me. And I thought it was love, but they was just trying to use me to set up the blood. Oh, you a little bitty dude. You can run down the street with a gun and they ain't even going to look at you or you could kill their ass. So after seeing um, another crew punk these dudes out, like one of the biggest crews. Now, this is, remember I said they took those 26,000 people to jail in 84. The 92 riots, it came. Pops died in 1990. So I'm one-man gang posse. My cousin got, comes from... Puerto Rico and takes leadership of this one man gang posse. So it turns and merges into something called making dollar bills. And it wasn't a crip and it wasn't a blood, but all of them was crips. But if all the bloods came down the alley, we green, we green, we green. <laughs> it was a, a, like a Trojan horse, but very strategic, thought out. Marat, they actually ended up turning into a gang called 11 8 Rider Gang. Gangster Crips, they turned it to their own entity. But when it was just eight or nine of us, it was one man gang posse. This is taking us to the riots because I was with these dudes when we, the riots popped off, which they were Crips. So I end up on Florence and Normandy. I wasn't there when Reginald Denny got beat up, but right before Reginald Denny got beat up, like everybody knew to meet up. I don't know how. It wasn't no phones or no Facebook, no none of that. Mm -hmm. Somebody got the word to meet up on Florence and Normandy. Like, they was taking some Crips to jail and we ain't gonna let this happen. So all the Crips start going over there. And for one of the glorious times in the world, we outfought the police. Like, we out of here. The projects, Nixon Gardens done it before, chased the police up out of here in L.A. in my generation. That was the first time me seeing that. And we immediately hit that liquor store. So now my crew like, oh, let's go do this in Inglewood. And if we wouldn't have went to Inglewood, like half, halfway to Inglewood, they got the man out the truck, Reginald Danny, and beat him. I missed that by when football and then beat him up by a second. It's like we had just was headed back to Inglewood. So now seeing Tiptoe get killed, the East Side, Crips, Bloods, Skid Row, 
now a full-fledged uprising. <laughs> I mean, when you can stand up and just see fires. I remember my mama telling me at 10 years old, the watch riots hit her. Now, here I am at 12 years old watching the L.A. riots, like history repeating itself, seeing the crackheads coming down the streets with shopping carts. But what that did was, let's take these people to jail, those leaders. And this is the first, I say, uh, push or challenge the Crips and Bloods got at something taking over that. And that came in something called tag banging. They were taggers. They've been taggers around for probably even longer than some of these crip gangs and blood gangs. And this was 1992 and people be like, Cripping and Blood was at its worst. No, that was us, tag bangers, killing each other. Cripping and Blood was in prison. That's when that was, they was in jail from all those riots and the 84 Olympic games. Now, it was our turn to take a stance. And this gave me that opportunity to want to be that leader. I found, remember now I went from OMG, making dollar bills. Now my cousin was one of those people who went to jail, Ace, that took that leadership role. That MDV evaporated real quick when a, a 9-4 Inglewood families came and said, can't nothing be in Inglewood but bless. So that was gone. But there were a few Inglewood crews like the one that I chose to hang with called the Money Side Hustlers. They were really, they were about four bloods in the crew, but there was more like 50 or 60 Crips. It was a lot of Crips, but they weren't the mean kind, except for two, these twin brothers. Like everybody knew them because they were from rolling 60s. So when they came to Inglewood High, they had, I'm Lil Money Maul from Money Side Hustlers, and there's a big Money Maul. His cousin, Lil Bang and Casper, were rolling 60s, like notorious. But they went to jail for bank robbery and got told on and was like, we ain't from 60s no more. We from Money Side. But going to Inglewood High with people that really, they was killing. High schoolers were really killing in that day. You know, like they were, they were real yeah. murderers in high school going over there. And they know like, oh, no, nah, hell no. Nah. So we were trying to become something different. We felt, and this goes for all the tag bangers, we can take away the Crips and the Bloods. We can stop our best friends that we went to elementary school, junior high, camp, juvenile hall. We can stop being hate and bang under these crews. And then they start killing each other. K-Dub, don't get along with trouble. The WDC just killed a K-Dub. Like now they're murdering each other. Then the K-Dub killed the Hoover, a tag banger. And that was the end of the tag bangers. Like once they went up against a real gang and, and the sex jerks and A-Trey Sidewinder, like once the tag bangers started to go, it's like y'all gonna be Crips or Bloods or y'all nothing no more. I'm a money side hustler. It's 1992, the riots is over. My mom has been to prison, she went to prison. Right after my father got killed, she went down the drug path so bad. Um, I I participated in crimes that I, I can't even like, I've done nothing I could do life for now. I went to jail at 14 years old and haven't shot a gun since 14. So yeah. nothing I've done 
I can go to jail for, but I still glory to God, don't like to glorify, say, oh, I killed him and blew his brains out. But at 12 years old, I started to participate in that type of behavior. It's, I think the most nicest way to say it as respect for the victims, even though they all were enemies. 12, 13 years old, I'm living like, keep in mind, the 17 year olds at high school got low riders and killing people. So the 12 year olds and the 13 year olds, we're like 16 year olds in high school, but we're in junior high. And it was like, we're at least five years older than what our real age is. So I say this to say, by the time 14 came around, first time I went to jail was, um, that would be 12 years old. Right once I started to join the money side hustle. And what sent you to jail? I'm getting out of elementary school. I see a, a bright ass yellow bug in the front with two junior high school friends of mine that just introduced me to the money side hustle. Come on, let me just go to money side. Oh, oh. The whole time the school police is sitting right there looking at he's like, man, I was sitting right there like this, sitting on my coffee, watching y'all. He seen me get in the car. Police got behind us. This dude tried to, don't know how to drive a stick first and foremost. He thought he was taking the parking brake off. He's like, I can't get the parking brake. I can't get the parking <laughs> I'm like, oh, man. They gave that. That was a grand theft auto. I didn't even make it to juvenile hall. They let our parents come get us from the Inglewood police station that night. And that would have been, my father was killed in March. That was right after April, May. Summertime, that was June. August, I did. That's the first time I discharged a firearm. And two days after I discharged that firearm, I went to jail for getting caught driving a stolen car. Driving the car with my big homeboy. He's teaching me how to drive. <laughs> it wasn't, I wasn't joyriding. I was learning <laughs> how to drive. Honest truth, brother. I would never lie. Because it's gonna, it won't set a godly purpose if I put extras on it. No, the homie G Bone was teaching me how to drive. Not no stick, a regular little Toyota Corolla. I must have hit the corner too quick, and the police right there. <laughs> no hesitation. They didn't even see me. I was damn near, you know. I'm way at the bottom. I'm like four eleven. Hey, what the hell? They thought they told me they thought it was the first, like how the Teslas is now. They like they they had to see what the hell was going on. But when I heard that burp, I couldn't even see up to the the you know the rear view. I couldn't even look up high enough. Out, you gotta punch the gas, so I'm punching the gas and didn't even see the homie. Like stop, stop, stop. I'm honestly trying to hit the brake, but I'm full gas. Ride it to a car. Oh. Luckily, it wasn't all innocent people, but unfortunately, it was the Linux dressing on me. And you oh. hit my car with the datings. Oh. <laughs> the second time I went to jail, the police didn't catch me. I ran to them. I could have got away. The homie G-Bone was knocked out, but the Essays was chasing me. I was going to hit a wall. I knew if I got over the wall and they caught me, I ran around them and ran to the police. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> <"Hey."> <laughs> 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 I 
Go get me. My head busted and everything. I'm the driver. <laughs> First time going to juvenile. Oh, uh, damn. Picked the lesser of two evils on that one. Uh, they probably would have killed me, man. Yeah. Me and G-Bone going to Los Padrinos Juvenile Hall. This is before American Me, so we didn't know nothing about the booty badge. My biggest fear was being not a crip or blood, being bullied. You know, we money side hustlers. You know, we not crip, not blood. But G-Bone, I know, man, I was in camp, and he's 17. And this wasn't even in Inglewood. That makes it even worse. I'm in Hartha the city right next to Inglewood. So I'm going to the first time I went to Jama to the Inglewood police station. So I thought that was the process. Like, oh, I'm going to go to Hartan. I mean, I thought they were going to take me to the Inglewood police station where I've been before. I go to the other jail, and it's a different entrance, like a gate. They just walk me through a door. At In- I thought I was in prison. I start crying again. My fifth time crying. <laughs> I'm prison. They sat us in there. And this is something that I don't know because I've never talked to other individuals. Yeah, I, I've had a couple of roommates before during my time that would tell me the police would try to not be all assholes, but some would try to say, bro, what? there's something better. But I've noticed throughout my life, there have been a lot of positive influences. They allowed G-Bone to take the case. So he had GTA. But this was Bone idea, though. It wasn't like the police came in there and said, you're going to take this GTA case and you're going to take this uh, uh, joyriding, which was a lesser offense. So Bone called the police and told them, like, you know, this is my little cousin. I'm already messed up. He ain't ever. He just went to jail and they let him go from the station. I'm not trying to. And they was like, okay, man, you was driving and he was joyriding. But now I know now, like he got tried as an adult because he was finna turn 18 that next week. They ain't got a, they got made money off him. That was a mm-hmm. case for them. Me, they just had to let me go, which they did after the first day in juvenile hall. Going in there with somebody you know kind of threw me off. So even it was two days because there was a Friday. We had to wait till Monday. So I did a weekend, but that's the best time because everybody is there. No school movement. You get to see how it works. And sitting in the day room watching movies and eating oatmeal cookies with a box of milk and a banana wasn't bad. (laughs) But keep in mind, we're on an orientation unit and my homeboy G-Bone is bigger than all you kids. He's about to start hitting the county. So ain't nobody even looking at us. So they let us go a week later. It's still summertime. So July the 4th, somebody called the police and said, somebody's shooting. It's the 4th of July. We weren't really out there shooting, though. But the lady said, we called the police, we called the police. But we thought we was blending in. And it took the police like an hour to get there. They caught us slipping. I had a gun on me. I'm going to LP by myself. Ain't no G-Bone. Ain't nobody else. I'm by myself going to juvenile hall. No, no. The judge gave me a week. He said, he know about my father. Because my mom up there crying, writing a letter. And 
please, your honor. And he said, he think it's best because she was begging for him to let me go that day. He said, I think he need a week in juvenile hall to see this is not like a scare straight. Yeah. No. Got back to LK, LP and it was smooth selling. And I was putting an observation tank. I was eating cookies and watching movies again. So, all right. And I say this to say that I believe if the judge wouldn't have gave me that week and would have sent me to like a therapy, like a boy's ranch or something, some type of alternative to that week, eating them cookies and sipping the juice and watching a movie I ain't never seen before. Like, I can do this. It kind of made me how we was desensitized. Our parents desensitized us for the violence. Juvenile Hall was so soft, so they'd be like, oh, we're going to sucker them and make it, make that 36000 a year off of them when they come to the state when it's youth authority time. So that process continued. And the only thing they told me is I can't wear my green because that was the money side hustle color. You can't hang out with these people. You got to go like rules and regulations instead of taking me fishing or camping. Teaching me something different instead of punishing me for clearly you see my daddy got killed. I didn't grown up over here and my mom is verbalizing this. So it's not like they don't know like this dude's had a bad deck of cards. The next step is drive-by attempt so it's another stolen car with a gun but the gun jammed as we were shooting and my luck again police is see us driving fast out the neighborhood i wasn't driving this time though so i jumped out the car through the gun but still i had joy riding and the police saw me point the gun but they never did find a gun but that's when I found out the pen, that's what the judge said, the pen is mightier than the sword. So I got sent to camp for three months. That would have been the perfect time to send me to the Boy Scouts, to yeah. uh, what they used to have, uh, some kind of Big Brother program or the YMCA. Something with a good structure to it, huh? Mm -hmm. That's all. And I believe how accomplished I am now that I would, I'd be the president. I'd be the Obama, you know, because camp was, uh, member juvenile hall was trying to ease you into that YA mentality. Now camp was built to really see if you wanted to change or continue down that path. Cause they had sort of like, I played in my first play in camp. At 11 years old, I played an elf. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> the Christmas story, because I was there for Christmas. My first Christmas when my dad died was spent incarcerated. I think every Christmas for 11 years after that was. So, Oh, geez. It was. It was. I didn't see 11 Christmases after my daddy died. I went to Damn. camp. Got out of camp. It was either I waited. I could have to wait till January the 5th. For transport, my court date was the 27th, and the judge didn't take into account that transportation wasn't going to be running. So instead of getting out on the 27th, I would have to wait for which would have missed my New Year's. So this man, Mr. Brooks, 
he was like, I volunteer and I'll take him down to the juvenile in my personal car so he can go before the court on the 27th. And I want to say that's the first, you know, how we, we talked about earlier. Did I look up to somebody or, and it was all negative and looking at my father's a, a, in a, a negative way. But this dude was the first person who I related to. I, I was like, damn, he really makes sense. Cause he said, I remind him of his son. He was a Puerto Rican dude. And he knew my mom from visiting. He was like, man, you're little, you, you don't look like these guys, you, you know? He said, we, we're better. He tried to hit me with the culture and the, we're Puerto Ricans and we never take any shit. Like, I was like, okay, I like that. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Now, this whole time, keep in mind, I haven't had any fights. I'm a money side hustler. We still, at that time, the only enemies we had, they weren't even going to juvenile. It was some football type of crew beef. So I'm just becoming friends, networking. I'm meeting people from East Coast, Hoover, Swan, through the whole juvenile system. I'm becoming known as being that little dude, the little hustler guy. So I get out of camp. Valentine's Day is when I go back. Moms um, had moved us out of Inglewood now. We were living in, what is this area called? Norwalk, Norwalk, California. And um, with my auntie, it wasn't, we wasn't actually, we was living with my auntie in Norwalk. Miles was homeless when I got to camp. That's what it was. So until we can get a spot back in Inglewood, and remember my aunt, this is my auntie, that's the highway patrol lady. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I'm fresh out of camp, and I I've, I want a gun. You know, I'm 12 now, because my birthday is in December. I got out December the 27th, so I spent that birthday, December, and I got that one New Year's in, New Year's 1990. That would be 94. I get that gun. Dealing with older friends. I want to prove myself. The yeah. reputation of a killer is now, remember, I, I earned my thing by stealing before and manipulation. I was too little to be a fighter or knockout artist. I couldn't do that. So I started using a, a firearm a lot on other gang members. And it caught the attention of an older homie who was actually one of the leaders of the Money Side Hustlers and one of the only bloods. He was what they call a stick-up guy. He was a robber, robber person. Long story short, without getting the and everything is, we are both went to jail. You know, this is all public record. But he was 27, I was 14. This was my first time seeing those stars on the Hollywood Strip. That was the good memory of this night, because this is going to be, again, one of those traumatic experiences in my life. We was robbing from about 11 p.m., to 2 p.m. because that's when the House of Blues in Hollywood on the Hollywood Strip closes. So from 10, I remember the 10 o'clock news was just starting when we walked out and 2 o'clock the House of Blues was closing when we decided to follow two females. Two Caucasian, little skinny, pretty females. And we weren't trying to get their phone numbers. Now, 
I wasn't into victimizing innocent people. Everything I was doing from the age of 10 to 14 was to glorify and benefit the game. Now, Money Side Hustlers were one of the only crews that still didn't go crip or blood. And a lot of pressure, a lot of gangs wanted, like, we were having money, we were shooting people, we were getting a notoriety. So they wanted us to become either or. So that's on my mind. And when I got out of camp, I got what they call a CYA state. So it's like, next time you're going to Hawaii. And give you a little history of the California Youth Authority before we get into what sent me there. It's a juvenile state facility. Unlike the camp and the juvenile halls, which are run through the county, California Youth Authority is a entity of the California Department of Corrections. It's in line with prison. So if you go to prison and you still owe YA time, you're going to go back to YA from prison and give them their time, which brings in a whole different element of drama. Everybody growing up was fearful of why that was like somewhere before prison you didn't want to go to why you had to be pretty much a very bad person to hit why and the judge made it clear that if i come back that's exactly where i would be going as i'm waiting to get out on that december 27th i didn't know on the 23rd that my brother got killed. If they could have never told me, they would have never told me. If they wanted me to get home, somebody to be there, instead of a counselor, though, or a pastor, the homies. Like, I see everything that contributed to my broken home experience turning into criminal behavior, drug abuse, and eventually hurting people because of that cliche that therapy isn't for us. I needed somebody to talk to. All them five times I had cried, I knew I couldn't cry no more. That was a violation like snitching, giving up the booty, dropping the soap. You can't do that. I was fully desensitized by this time. So I wanted to go to Y. It, it didn't cause any fear. So once I got home and they told me what happened, I was back in jail 12 days later for attempted murder. And what happened is my mom convinced me to go to church and meet with my probation officer. I was going to go straight from the jail to the streets. Let's be bad. Moms had actually found a place to live in a different city. Like this was part of the victims program. Like they offer benefits from the death to try to not so where I don't die, you know, let's move him out of town. Let's got a bedroom set. So I'm coming home instead of the same nothing. And keeping in mind, I got that Brooks dude, Puerto Rican. I feel positive. But I don't know. Ken did, though. But I'm so excited now. Keep in mind. I'm 14. This is like the longest trip. This was my third camp program, and this was five months. So I like, I just did five years. 
I ain't even worried about where he at. I want to know where the girl's at because I got other brothers, all kind of stuff. Once I get home and the homies get there, we start eating. They sat down and they told me what happened. I wanted to immediately go get it them. Remember when I went to jail for the for the first time and G-Bone said he committed the GTA and it wasn't him? G-Bone, I can't let you do that, bro. He's like, I promise you, we've done what we need to do. But he knew that my bro wouldn't want me to do that. So he took me, instead of taking the case, he took me to go try to check into high school. I've never been to a high school. I didn't graduate from junior high, graduated in camp. Like, I'm going to show you something different, homie. I want you to do what I couldn't do. So we tried to check into Clark High School. <laughs> they looked at my records, looked at him, like, where is your mama at? Like, she at home. She's doing our thing. <laughs> <laughs> Khakis, gang-related attire. They, no, 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 no. You want to go right here to this little continuation school down here? I was positive. And next thing came a girl. And I was 14. She was 20. Older woman. Uh, just had a baby. Her baby daddy was a, a blood in jail. And I was in jail with some of his homies. Like, it was a, do, a new experience. My other girlfriend didn't even know how to wipe their two to Teddy right. You know, it's me. <laughs> they got boo booty. You know, I'm 14. This was a woman. I had opportunities. My probation officer was cool. He took me to go see Pulp Fiction. The first time going to see a movie, not sneaking in and buying popcorn and not having my mom bring it out of the cut. I wanted to change at 14. And then one day, my girlfriend, I learned, she know me with a real man. <laughs> I was her little boo thing. I ain't know nothing about that. And I went to the hood, crying to the homie, oh, man. And they all just spent a night over here. We got high and all of this. And I was going to miss my first day of school. I like, I could miss the day. I ain't, I ain't not missed no day yet. And what was crazy is one of my boys that I was going to the school with when I got out, May May from Capanella Park, he had just went to jail. And everybody, oh, May May going to Y. I'm like, damn, poor May May. Two weeks later. Instead of going home and catching the bus that night, I want the homies to drive me to Downey from Inglewood, which is about a 40-minute drive, a two-hour bus drive, though. So they ain't finna drive me. It's too late, police. No, nah, no, nah, you can spend the night, take you in the morning, or you catch the bus. Not catching that bus. So we're going to take me home. And they told me how to do my girlfriend. They said, try to annoy her. You know, they try to give me the little advice. So I'm feeling good. And I see somebody that has something to do with my brother coming out that school. What he doing over here? I ain't had no gun. I actually ran into the homie apartment and grabbed a knife. And went and ran after this dude and stabbed him. On the high school campus with about a thousand kids around screaming and yelling like, y'all tripping. And I didn't know at the time who this dude named uh, Pete Wilson was. And I knew nothing about being tried as adults or none of this type of stuff. 
But this time, I was scared about that YA stay. They was talking about you're going to go to a hearing to determine whether we're going to try you as an adult or a juvenile. Uh -huh. Yeah, you can go to prison. You stab this man eight times on a school campus. That's a law violation just doing that. And it was looking bad. But the orange suit is called high-risk offender, which determines that you're um, in there for, you got to be murder, a high-risk crime. Murder or attempted murder, that's the only thing. Or escape risk, you get this orange suit. I had never been in an orange suit until this case. And it was explained to me quickly what a fitness and a dope and all of that is. And it was explained to me by this very foisteristic guy who <laughs> just kind of got caught with his booty hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is my first day meeting Whack. He went by what? uh Whack 100? Uh-huh. Cash oh, damn. And how he is now, he was 1994. Oh, real? Oh, yeah. Now, he had came from YA already. He was a little, because he's three years older than me, two years. He's a little more seasoned than I. Remember, I'm from Money Side Hustle. He's from two P's and one B on Pyro. <laughs> <laughs> That's him. <laughs> I swear. I'll never forget it. And there's plenty of witnesses. I meet him. I get my orange suit. So now, him, it was him and another uh, infamous inmate. Don't too many people know, but if you Google Antonio Jones, ice cream truck killer, Inglewood, that's Lil B from Crenshaw Mafia. They knew each other from YA, and they were in Central Juvenile Hall. Both under fake names, because YA is a state institution, so they were on parole. So they trying to but dangle their way out of a juvenile case by lying about who they are. And Antonio got caught first, because his face popped up on America Most Wanted when we was in the day room watching. Antonio Dijon Jones. He killed the ice cream truck driver, went to the gang rival territory, and portrayed to be the ice cream, and shot them when they came. Oh, holy oh, shit. Day room. They turned him in. But prior to that, this dude Wack, because I was talking to Lil B when I meet Wack. He was, they was inside what they call the fish tank. They had a, you could see right in on them. They two was in that little room together. Wack uh, asked to say, blood, where you from? And Lil B knew me because my mom's husband's from Crenshaw Mafia. Like, I don't know, blood, that's cut husband, bloody little hustler, Inglewood. Oh, blood, you can't come up in here. Like, huh? Lil B just asked me to come in here. You know what I'm saying? Like, come on over here, Twan. He called me by my real. He know me from the street. And here go whack at the door, like, blood, you can't come up in here. And I'm like, I'm lost. This dude is way bigger than me. Lil B, you just called me like, let's start blood out, homie. I'm lost. He's like, hey, bro, this is what goes on 
Now, he said he seen me in orange. He thought I was going to be tried as an adult. I was facing being tried as an adult. So they thought I was going to hit prison. You can't be no hustler. I can't. It's like I felt like hearing him on Clubhouse now. It's like I, I can hear him talking there. The blood just can't come in here being no hustler. No, no that's all that's Crips. <laughs> Ain't nothing but power rules and bloods on power rules. Now, I'm a 15-year-old. I just turned 15 now. I'm lost. I'm still trying to grasp adult or juvenile. YA or prison. And you telling me, he say, so, blood, you check this out. You could be a coin of power rule. Huh? I say, my man, I ain't never been to Pacoima. I, don't, I ain't <laughs> never even heard of that game. What you mean, blood? If Lil B wasn't there, he would have took advantage of me. He would have took advantage. Lil B like, no, nah, blood, he from Crenshaw Mafia if he from anything. So that's how my involvement with the Crenshaw Mafia's came. Now, some of my homies from money side felt, oh, bless you went in there and on some scary shit. And for y'all haters, if I would have went in as a money side, I probably would have not had no fights. But I ended up having at least 100 fights. 30 enemies to two enemies that I probably would not only ran into one money side hustler enemy in my whole wide tenure, compared to the Raymonds, the Legends, the Watergates, the IVCs, the 111s, the 60s, no. I wasn't really scared of whack because I felt Lil B had my back. But at 15, I understood, like, there's rules and there's uh, uh, regulations, you know? And like Wax said, but if you do it, do it right. And I ain't seen for a long, long, long time after that, because right after they got Lil B out on America Most Wanted, they found out who Wack was, and he went back to YA before he started his prison term. And long story short, 1995, one of the worst judges, everybody thought I was going to get tried as a dope. I done stabbed this man, Mudbone, shout out to my victim. He didn't come to court, David. Based on him not coming to court, Judge Dorm decided to try me as a juvenile and sentenced me with a, a term of up to 15 years in the California Youth Authority. I heard that 15 years and almost wanted to cry. But luckily, I remember what Wackenden was telling us, like, blood, they're going to tell you you got a thousand years, but they're only going to start you off with this little bit of time and see how you do. So I kept that in mind and wasn't too discouraged. And 1995, March, I rode up to Norwalk SRCC, Southern Reception Center and Clinic. Totally different environment than juvenile hall, camp, placement, or anything that I've ever been in before, being that there's two reception units in Norwalk. You got Gibbs for the 18-year-olds to 25. And you got Pico for as little as 12. I've seen a 10-year-old before to 16, no, 15. So the 10-year-olds to 15-year-olds, oh, no, 10 to 17 go there. 
for reception. So we walk past men that look like our fathers. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I've mixed up youth offenders with adults. Like, I thought they were staff or teachers, and they was kids like us in this jail. You have people coming from prison. You have prison gangs that I had never even heard of, like from a real Calipat, Pelican Bay. Like, what the hell? So entering the youth authority in my generation, there are several people that I, I remember from white. There's Doves. There's, you can go through many, several. Gunner, a lot of us, Whack. See, there's a lot of white babies. But I have the record of time served in the youth authority as a YA offense. So I did a, a 10 years and nine months straight. Before like before me was nine years and eight months. Now there's other offenders because when I first came to Y, there was three kind of numbers. You had a YA number, which I fell under. That's a, a commitment from the juvenile uh, court. Then you had M numbers. Those are juvenile adult commitments. Juveniles that are tried as adults but still young enough to go to Y. So say you 16, you got tried as adult. You got 145 years. Go to Y till you turn 18 or 19 or you can stay there till you're 25. Like that was their incentive to keep these kids with life sentences to not just kill everybody. Like, okay, you stay here. You might have a little sex with your girlfriend and visiting, touch visits. This isn't prison. So they would keep you with that fear, like, be cool, be cool. You can make it here. But still, it was a very harsh environment. But everything that I went through, I made it through for a cool amount of time. 1996. Violence. All I hear is violence. Frank Antoine Lewis, Google. You can go to the Amazon one. It's going to be the domestic book. Frank Antoine Lewis, The Journey of Frank Antoine Lewis. You can read the book for free right there. And you can download it, say, uh, review. And you can read it right there. Dope boys go brave. I lace my converse and I swing my chain. You ain't ready to die by the jump back in your lane. You rap niggas is crisscross. I don't respect niggas.